Well, it's been asked me, how do you come up with your messages? And there's some laughter from some there. Well, I'll tell you, it's usually born of longer paths uh, of reading Scripture and in a multitude of counsel by several published authors and uh, personal conviction, cultural observation, prayer and consultation. And in case you wondered, I'm usually not that excited about coming to give the messages that I end up having to give. Uh, It's usually not the stuff of popularity or fun. So um, that coupled with a general offensiveness that I fight with in being a very excitable large bear... along with my rhetorical musings and accompanying taxonomy that sometimes is hard to understand. There I go again. Let me say that another way right quick. I'm big and the way I talk is hard sometimes. Well, all these things make sermons difficult for me. And I'm sure sometimes they do for you too. I'm going to labor this morning to keep me at bay as much as possible. But if some of it comes out, I apologize in advance. In case I might offend anyone, I don't intend to. We're continuing this morning in the tale of two kingdoms. Last week we looked at Babel. The first time the nations of the world were united in challenging God. So they could build up their kingdom to heavens to be like God and have a freedom that allowed them to accomplish anything they purposed to do. We also looked at two great kingdoms of the world. The first was Babylon, who is the militaristic power whose ruler saw himself and his kingdom as the great provider of all the world, the world tree. Though we also came to find that mostly it provided for themselves at the expense of the weak and the poor. And finally, we looked at Tyre, the economic world power in trade who enriched the peoples of the world, but especially the kings of the earth. Of course, her wisdom and beauty were used to enrich herself more than any other, revealing the same self-serving Abuse of privilege and power found in all the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the earth carry out this program of becoming like gods in order to make a life for themselves characterized by a life in excess not suitable for a creature. Number two, in order it's characterized by a desire for a liberty of sovereign self-determination over their lives, self-rule. And it's characterized by a selfish pursuit of happiness found in gaining all that this world has to offer. And all of these things at the expense of the great majority of the human lives of the world. What we discussed last week was the biblical perspective on the great empires of the world. There are no examples of a kingdom of this world who follows after God, not one. And America is no exception. The kingdoms of the world in the end are united in challenging God. That is the vision that the scriptures portray. We exist today in such an empire called the USA and are continually at risk, just as all of God's people have always been, of taking on the religious values of the culture And believing the good news, which is the gospel, the good news that it offers by following her ways. Now, I need to give a qualification, so please note. While our culture finds its place among all the cultures of the world, and it is both ordained by God and has some very good aspects to it, but it is also tainted by sin and Satan. And I want to make a very important clarification Today and here, I am focusing specifically on the appeal of Satan through this current form of empire we live amidst. 
you may happen to hear an aggressive tone from me today, whether I want to or not. And I can assure you, I do not. And while you are likely affected by the kingdom of this world, as we all are from one degree to another, my tone and tenor is to be directed towards Satan and his occupation with the kingdoms of the world, not at you, the people of God. Please don't misunderstand. I really, earnestly have nothing but love and compassion for every one of you as I am among you and struggle, struggle as greatly or more great than many of you. If I happen to point towards you, please know that this is merely the way I point emphatically to myself and it's all I intend by it. Well, this week we're going to look at the Roman Empire, the Babylon of Revelation, where it becomes more clear what is actually going on in the big picture. And I need you to understand, in order to understand all the rest, what this big picture is. Satan, the great deceiver, is making an appeal to our flesh through false prophets who promote the kingdoms of the world and their gospel or good news. Let me say that another way. Satan, who rules the kingdoms of the world, is proclaiming his gospel or good news through the false prophets in order to appeal to our flesh. That's the big picture. That appeal essentially is boiled down to this. Take and eat. And you will be like God. This is what is going on in the very big picture of the kingdoms of this world. This is what I'm trying to address. Well, we start in Revelation where we come to see the destroyers of the world. And we see this narrative that the scriptures have of domination and exploitation culminating in John's prophetic portrayal of the Roman Empire in Revelation. Several difficult characters in this portrayal of the Roman Empire appear here. So I'm going to go ahead and allude to which ones they will be, and I'm going to explain each of those a little bit more. First, there is the dragon, who is Satan, and he is behind the whole enterprise. Second, there is the second-headed beast, which is the political power of the empire, of Rome, referred to as Babylon, which is acquired and maintained by military domination. Third, there is the false prophet, which is the political religion of the empire, the imperial cult of the Roman Empire, which maintains the power, power of the empire by ideology and propaganda. And finally, there is Babylon, the city of Rome. Growing, growing rich on the spoils of empire and worldwide trade. And so the cast is set. Revelation 13.3 and following offers this. And I'm going to be jumping around a lot. My wife is like, Jason, I try to follow you and I don't. Well, I'm going to be jumping around a lot. I'm giving a very big picture, okay? So you can just listen or you can try to follow around or you can just write it down and go back and look at it some more if you'd like. My wife's strategy, she said, sometimes just listening is better with you, Jason, because you're difficult. <laughs> Revelation 13, 3 and following says this, The whole world, all of the world, was amazed and followed after the beast. You remember which one the beast is, right? The kingdom of the world. They worshipped the dragon, Satan. Because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to war wage war with him? No one can contend with the beast. One worships that which they ascribe power to. If you ascribe ultimate power to the political, militaristic, and economic systems of the nations of this world, you are actually worshiping Satan who stands behind those nations. Regardless whether it is the security you may find in the nation that you occupy, 
or the fear you ascribe to an opposing nation. Both are two sides of the same idle coin. Any fear or security derived from any power other than God's is idolatry. The gospels of both the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God begin here. Who or what do you ascribe power to? Who or what do you find security in? Who or what do you ascribe fear to? Sometimes it's easier to look at which one you serve and work back to say or make a judgment on which you ascribe power to. The false prophet, which was the political religion of the empire, functions as the highly effective propaganda machine that promotes the gospel of, or the good news of the empire. According to the propaganda, in Rome's instance, Rome's conquests have bestowed great benefits on all the world. The famous Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. The false prophet speaks of the peace that exists within the Roman Empire. See, the, the imperial cult where they worshipped the empire was central to the peace said to be had in this world. To live outside the gospel of this Roman Empire as proclaimed by the imperial cult was to not prosper. It was to die. To be separated from, to be separated out of, and not to enjoy all the benefits that it offered. The things you see in Scripture, we see a lot in Scripture, and you'll see a whole lot in Revelation, but you also saw it with the apostles about not eating meat sacrificed to idols. You might recall many instances in which you've seen this. Well, this actually had to do with partaking in this imperial court, in, in this imperial uh, cult. To not partake of this and to not ascribe power and divinity to the, the emperor would have been death for them. They would have been cut off socially, economically. This was where you derived all the benefits of the empire that you are to ascribe power to. Well, this propaganda dupes its subjects into welcoming rather than resisting the empire, which is what they should do. But here, the empire later in Revelation appears in its true colors. It's the rampaging monster of John's vision. The harlot Babylon, finally, is the city of Rome, unmistakably because she is seated on seven hills in Revelation 17.9. Some of the things that it talks about is highly figurative, so I want to explain what some of them are. Her prostitution does not refer to false religion, as it does when it refers to God's people committing adultery, though idolatry, but idolatry certainly is included as part of it. Babylon, though, is not God's wife, as Israel and the church are. Prostitution here refers to trade, as it does in Isaiah's oracle about Tyre in Isaiah 23, 15 to 18. Just as the case with Tyre and Babylon, Rome was where all the goods of the empire and beyond ended up. It was for the city of Rome's own massive consumption of necessities and extravagant luxuries alike that Rome exploited the world economically. This is what Revelation calls the harlot Babylon's fornication with the kings of the earth. Here in Revelation 17, 1 through 2. Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, in allusion to trade on many waters, whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality with. And those who dwelled on the earth were made drunk from the wine of her immorality. Just as with all other empires, it was the privileged in the provinces of the empire who did well for themselves out of her trade, not the poor or the weak at the edges of the empire, which made the trade immoral in its exclusive self-interest over and against others. We come to see the human exploitation that this economic system entailed, which 
was highlighted by the way the list of imports to Babylon ends in 18, 12 through 13 with slaves, which it also points out happens to be human lives. At the height of her prosperity, Babylon boasted in Revelation 18, 7, listen closely, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Let me explain. She says this, I am the one with dominance. I am not vulnerable or weak, and it will be so forever. This is the same illusion of prosperity that Rome as the eternal city proclaimed for herself. And by the way, all other great empires of the world claim. And as a ruler and the kingdom goes, so goes its people. I need to give a qualification real quick. I'm about to characterize the gospel of this current empire. I'm not trying to characterize you or your beliefs whatsoever. They may intersect. I don't really know. Mine do at many points. But I am characterizing the gospel message of the USA in its present culture. So I'm characterizing Satan as he makes appeal to this current world empire through the false prophets in order to appeal to our flesh. So if you hear some of these things that are very appealing, they are intended to be by one who is far craftier than anyone in this room. Fear death in this life. Trust in and support the militaristic and political domination of the USA and participate in its economic dominance and exploitation. Follow the USA in its imperial religion of secularism by pursuing personal happiness in order to procure a better life for you and yours with a liberty suitable to a God afforded to you by the domination of your nation over and against all others which is also what is best for the nations of the world, the Pax Americana. Progress in life life is to be gained through education, technology, and empire. That's enlightenment progressivism, by the way. Work hard and get ahead. Be satisfied with excess so you might quit one day and be freed from the limitations of humanity for the sake of unhindered self-determination. We call it retirement. These are the terms the founding fathers laid out, reinterpreted anew, and promoted by institutions, political public discourse, and by your favorite news source in varied forms. For this is a democracy ruled by my people. For my people as we choose which secular false prophets propaganda and ideology, Democrats or Republicans, is best for this empire of Babylon. By the way, the best being determined exclusively by how I personally benefit from it all. In the interest of economic dominance through free market capitalism, on which your life depends, by the way, fight for your own place among the elites up to the heavens where you can make a name for yourself and leave a legacy for your family to the praise of your glory. Do this so you may have all that this world has to offer you in order that you may be whole, complete, and lacking in nothing for this life. So you can have peace, all which is all that you envision for you and yours in this life. Seek after your own life today in order that you may gain it in this life eventually as you build your kingdom up to the heavens so you can be like a God. It doesn't use such explicit terms or everybody would know that it was false. But you hear the appeal, don't you? In fact, the good news of the USA is so widespread that in our culture we have shaped the good news of Jesus 
in order that it can be believed right alongside it. Watch how this works. We have reduced the gospel of Jesus so it can be adapted to the kingdom of this world. Here's how we did it. We made conversion into a one-time event and experience as opposed to a way to be followed, the way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom. So you can live for yourself in this current kingdom of Satan and prosper greatly in this life. And if you make a decision to confess belief in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you can also prosper after death in heaven. You will be saved. The benefits of two kingdoms for the price of one. All you need to do is live for the kingdom of this world and also make a decision to confess faith for the kingdom of God. This reduced version of the gospel is not the vision the scriptures offer. The gospel of Jesus is the gospel of his kingdom that stands over and against all the kingdoms of the world who are united in challenging God. The two are like oil and water. They cannot be combined. Well, while our culture finds its place among the cultures of the world, I will say again so that no one misunderstands, the culture of this world and of the USA is both ordained by God with many good aspects, but also tainted by sin and Satan. And here, once again, I am focusing on the appeal of Satan through this current form of empire that we live amidst, which is much like every empire that's ever existed in the history of the world. I want to make sure everybody's clear that I said that. I'm going to spell out two values here, because I know you're wondering, Jason, when is this getting down to how then must we live? I'm going to spell out two values, both of which center on selfishness, you'll see as the dominant theme throughout, that this current world kingdom must promote in order to dominate, and which I'm sure has infiltrated everyone's lives to one degree or another. I know it has mine. There's no doubt about it. Y'all, I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate for you. It for sure has to me. The first one of these two is freedom and individualism. Freedom is the primary value of the current world empire. And while freedom is a great value in terms of the dignity of the individual and the fundamental human rights that ought to be afforded to every individual, let me be a great supporter of that, contemporary concepts of freedom are much broader than those that, which have been enshrined in democratic political systems. The spirit of Babel and this current world order alike aspire to freedom from all limits whatsoever. Complete freedom. The understanding of freedom as a right to break out from all restrictions whatsoever has been very damaging, particularly for individualists such as ourselves. Contemporary individualists seem to think the more freedom they have, the better. For them and everyone else. And the freedom they ultimately want is the freedom of self-rule, of sovereignty over their lives. To be and do whatever one desires. To chase and fulfill all your dreams. To sacrificially, because we're conservative, Pursue the vision you have for your life. For this version of freedom, other people can only be restrictions to that freedom. This makes freedom and community completely incompatible. Why? Because obligations to other people necessarily restrict freedom. In our current culture, obligation to other people are, is put in negative terms. See if you can hear it here. Do what you like so long as you don't bring harm to anyone else. Peculiar form, I think. While the scriptures do value freedom, and they certainly do, against oppressive conditions or forces of all kinds, uh, governmental, social, demonic, 
and even physical as Jesus comes and heals. It's also notable for its profound diagnosis of humans as in the bondage to sin. Liberation from external constraints is not enough. There are compulsions and addictions to evil which one must be freed from. Sin, in Scripture, is characterized most aptly and generally as selfishness, self-centeredness, of being enslaved to one's own desires, of being addicted to me. Paul speaks of this to Christians when he exhorts us to not turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh or selfishness, but through love to serve one another, selflessness. Freedom is not conceived of in our individualistic culture um, as dependence. It's actually conceived of as complete independence, self-sufficiency, to the rejection of any form of dependence whatsoever. Freedom in this system is gained by providing exclusively for oneself to be a self-made man. Because you see, if I didn't need nothing from nobody, guess what? I don't owe nothing to nobody but me. This kind of freedom of maximal independence makes people unwilling to make long-term commitments. That's one of the places you see it. Here's another one. They're unwilling to stick with relationships or situations that are not going well. People want to keep their options open. They want the right to move on and hate being dependent on others, indebting themselves to them. Well, these facets of freedom are opposed to community, which require virtues such as faithfulness or commitment. It is also opposed to belonging. Though humans long for a community that they belong to, they feel great tension in the limits to personal freedom it costs to also belong for a community. Well, biblically, freedom is finite and must be exercised within given limits. Independence is only possible biblically in dependence on God and in the web of interdependent relationships within the body of Christ and within society at large. Freedom is not merely from, but also for. It is for the good life that our Creator has intended for us creatures, which more than anything looks like service to God and to others. That's what we're free for. True freedom thrives not in isolation as independence from others and choice for oneself, but in mutuality with others, with God, His church, and all the peoples of the world. Hear closely and remember back in Genesis, beware of the serpent who offers you to have an absolute freedom that empowers you to be like God. It historically and prophetically always ends in death. Eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which by the way is the tree of wisdom, was a way of making the God who imparted wisdom unnecessary. And the multitude of counsel in which his wisdom was to be found no longer needed. This is a vision of maximal independence. The fear of God, however, we find is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God denotes a dependent relationship on him and his interdependent design for humanity. Contemporary notions of freedom reject the vision of God as oppressive to the individual's freedom. This plays out in people's unwillingness to be members of a church, to commit to a small group, to commit to service both in finances and in time, and to submit to any authority, including leaders, elders of a church, one another in all the fear of Christ. The freedom found in Christ is a freedom found in submission, ironically enough, not in dominance. 
Well, this brings me to my second of the two values. Consumerism and excess. And everybody goes, oh, it's okay. There's good news on the way. Well, while Western societies have, more, have had greater affluence than anyone in the history of the world, actually not everyone has benefited. The gap between the poorest and the richest historically has increased, and it continues to increase at alarming rates. But most people, at least most that I'm around, enjoy a material standard of living that few peoples of the world have ever dreamed of. And few would deny, nor would I, that some real benefits have accompanied this. And they have. There are good aspects to it. I'm not here to explore those today. I imagine you hear enough about them as it is. But when you take this and you couple it with a consumerist culture in which buying and consuming what is bought both in experiences, through vacations and other things, uh, and through the things we actually purchase, dominate life, you have problems. And this is more than just good old-fashioned greed, though it certainly is included. See, consumerism, think back to my revelation terms, is an ideology promoted by the propaganda of commercial interests that permeates the cultural context and its intent is to actually form people's desires and their values. Did you hear that? Consumerism is an ideology promoted by the propaganda of commercial interests that permeates the cultural context to such a degree and with the intent that it would form people's desires and values. The commercial model of buying and selling objects extends to every area of life that can be conceivably imagined. Packaged, marketed, and sold for profit, they even do it with ministries. This ideology of consumerism is a vital support for economic systems that depend on creating new wants, a want, and turning it into a need for what has never been considered a necessity of life in the history of the world. This ideology feeds off the realities of the fall. That human wants for what can be bought are unlimited. And that human desires for what can be bought are insatiable. Consumerism is dependent upon luring people to want for more. To fulfill all your desires and all for you and for yours. Just with all the kingdoms of the world, consumerism has now entered into a phase where style or image is dominant. You heard this entire, you hear it in Rome in Revelation about their beauty and the way they look and the way they adorn themselves. We are not just as wealthy as our possessions and consumer. And, and lifestyle proclaim, we're actually, you ready? The sort of people our possessions and consumer lifestyle choices indicate. You see this in an extravagant way, particularly with the youth culture, but they've learned it from others who are further along. What does your home or car or clothes say about you? What do you intend for them to say about you? See, consumer choices actually allow consumers to create identities for themselves. Images to be put up on social media and various other places. The vision of what we would like everyone to think that our lives actually are. But really, they're only masks they're masks behind which people have lost any more substantial identity, such as the one found in Christ. Where you would be identified not by what you drove or where you lived or what you wore, but by the peculiarity of the community of sacrificial love that you happen to belong to and belong for. 
This ideology of consumerism has yielded to a damaging addiction to excess. Once again, I will use my pointer finger. Instead of appreciators of the good of the earth, we become ever discontented and dissatisfied cravers for more. This is how the pursuit of happiness has been sold, the damage for which has been very significant. Here if you have any of these symptoms. Depression, chronic anxiety, mental ills caused by excessive stress, and obesity. People in the West stress greatly over the economy because their way of life and their goals for this life depend on a level of affluence that the world has ever known. What a peculiar thing. Ironically, the kingdoms of the world and their ideology both offer life in great excess. And simultaneously, that's a life that yields death in many varied forms to its citizens. Well, we get to shift gears to greater things now. We're on to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Do not be dismayed. There is hope yet. Here is the gospel of the kingdom of God, and I want you to hear it in distinction from the other gospel that I offered, and I want you to hear it very clearly. There's a whole lot of scripture in here. Fear God, who has the power over life and death. Trust not in militaristic or economic might, but in the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Sacrificing your life. Freely giving up your own liberty for the sake of others. Pursue a life suitable to a creature made in the image and likeness of God. Pursue a liberty that binds you as a dependent of your creator, an interdependent of Christ's body, and a debtor of love to all the peoples of the world. And which also inclines you and obligates you for justice for all that you would be a self-sacrificial defender of the weak, a provider of the poor, a caretaker for the vulnerable. Fight and labor for a place among the lowest and most despised of the earth where you may exalt the name of God to the praise of his glory. Lose your life for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom in order that you will find it as God brings his kingdom down to you. This is a gospel in keeping with the ways of the one we follow. For our identity ultimately is in Christ. Jesus, the ruler whose kingdom does not reach up to heaven, but comes down from heaven. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar, as we heard in Babylon, had to be forced to share the condition of his lowliest subjects, even the ox, Jesus voluntarily humbles himself all the way to the level of a slave or a criminal and to the point of being crucified on the cross. A death, by the way, at the hand of the great world empire, no less. He is both the divine king who has the unique divine right to rule his human subjects. He is God, very God. But he is also the human king who qualifies for his rule by self-denying solidarity with all of his subjects. In strictness, strictest fulfillment of Daniel 4.17 and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it is the lowliest of all that God gives the kingdom to. This is a form of global empire as far from domination as one could possibly get. It is also the only kingdom that has ever in the history of the world actually delivered on its promises of life, even life with God and resurrection from the dead. It's delivered on liberty from the enslavement of sin and selfishness, a liberty that expends itself for the good of others and which sacrifices itself to procure justice for all, especially the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable of all the world. Look at your life. Take an inventory. What are you serving? What are you pursuing? 
a life with God and his people, living sacrificially for him in his community and for all the nations of the world with an eye towards resurrection when God's kingdom finally comes down, or a life with you and your family, living an isolated, independent life, sacrificing mostly for yourself and yours, with an eye towards your prosperity and security on this earth as you build your kingdom up to the heavens. Which life are you pursuing? Which liberty are you pursuing? One where God's spirit is at war with your flesh in the body of Christ? Where you are no longer living as a slave to sin and selfishness? Where you use your liberty to become a debtor of love to all? Pouring yourself out to the point of personal vulnerability for the good of the most weak, the most poor, the most vulnerable of the world? Because those were the same terms the one you say you follow actually came to you? Or is it a liberty where you have managed a peace treaty between kingdoms, quenching God's spirit and sacrificing in order to fulfill all the desires of your flesh, where you use your liberty to further you and yours, where you pour yourself out in order that you can have all that this world has to offer you and give enough to others to, point, to the point that you can feel good about yourself so long as it doesn't intrude on your liberty for self-determination or maximal independence. Take an account, both of your time and your money, and the answer will be far clearer than you ever wanted it to be. I know when Jill and I partake in this exercise, it is extraordinarily uncomfortable. We both get offended at each other. We both struggle through it greatly. Because in the end, we're held accountable to something far greater then we will naturally hold ourselves accountable to. But look at what you serve and it will, revere what, it will reveal what you fear and ascribe power to. It will reveal who you worship. Then you'll come to a place where you realize, and boy, this will get heavy. To live for Jesus and the kingdom of God is going to cost you your life. That's why it's so uncomfortable. Because we know to speak of those things in the terms he comes to us means we have to forsake the things that we call life and greatly desire in this life. And it might even look like death in this world. Which brings us to our final section, the witnesses of Jesus. This is a tough one too, the high calling we all have to, be wit to bear the witness of Jesus. Here at the end, I have to return to Revelation because it reveals more than any other book how the two narratives of the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God at the end are in distinct opposition to one another. The key words used here in Revelation are witness which is drawn from the court of law, and conquer, which is drawn from the battlefield. And both Jesus and his followers witness and also conquer. However, the beast too has a counterpart to witness, which is to deceive. And the beast too is said to conquer, ironically enough. Revelation makes much use of the terms truth and deceit. Jesus himself in Revelation 1.5 is said to be the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Jesus in 3.14 is the faithful and true witness. Because of the witness he bore to God during his earthly life and his faithfulness in maintaining that witness even unto death. He did the Father's will by dying for our sins. And in Revelation 1.5, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Jesus' followers, we find, are also witnesses, which in several passages is synonymous with a martyr. 
to be a witness in Revelation was to be a martyr, to die. More specifically, they are those who bear the witness of Jesus. Those who in 1217 keep the commandment of God and hold to the witness of Jesus. The phrasing here refers to the witness that Jesus bore to God that Christians are to continue to bear. In 1910, we find the witnesses to be the brethren, brethren who hold the witness of Jesus, for the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we hear the spirit of prophecy and we go, oh, that didn't have anything to do with us. Well, if you read carefully in Revelation, it might have everything to do with us. This witness by Jesus and his followers to the true God and his righteousness in the spirit of prophecy serves to expose the falsehood of the beast's idolatry. The assertions that the beast has to his own power is ultimate and divine. That is what the spirit of prophecy does. It's the witness of Jesus that exposes this idolatry because the beast's power cannot overcome it in the end. Not even when it puts those witnesses to death. Quite the opposite happens, in fact. Jesus and the martyrs witness to God's truth by not denying it even in the face of death. So as they die to self and suffer the great consequences of it, maybe even unto death, they are a witness to the ultimate power of God that has power even over death. Revelation 12, 11 says this, And they overcame the beast because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their witness, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. The people of God are at war. And when the nonviolent witness of God's people proves convincing, the beast's deceits and violence is exposed, and people are won from serving the beast to worshiping the true God. It is very interesting that the deaths of the martyrs, understood as witness, is sometimes in Scripture described as the beast's victory over them. 11.7 says this, when they have finished their testimony or witness, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. The beast overcomes and kills the witnesses of Jesus. 13.7, it was given to the beast to make war with the saints and overcome them. But more significantly, the death of the martyrs after the final judgment is also described as their victory over the beast in 15.2. From the beast's earthbound perspective, he seems to have defeated the saints of God, just as he seemed to have defeated Jesus on the cross. But from the heavenly perspective that the book of Revelation offers, it is they who have won the real victory. Despite the fact that many of us here are Christians who have practices that exhibit the kingdom of God, and I have seen many from many of you in the three years I've been here at Melanie Park Church. I love this congregation and praise God for the deeds that I've seen among you. My guess is that all of us, because we are a part of the culture, this culture, also sometimes give a mixed message. And sometimes that mixed message supports the kingdoms of this world and ascribes power to that. Each of us to lesser or greater degrees and in varying ways. But one cannot serve two gods. You cannot live for two kingdoms. You will serve the one and forsake the other. This is why we must understand the world empires. In order that we can be overcomers of these world empires. Through the power of the spirit of God. We must be in the world, but not of it. We must be witnesses of our Lord and live according to the gospel of his kingdom, even at the price of death in this life. The spirit in us, the church, must be waging war with the flesh, confessing sin that we might be healed, 
In the spirit of prophecy, we must proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom over and against the kingdoms of this world and their ideology and their propaganda in order to reveal their deceit and the truth of God. Listen finally. The way of the cross is the way of Jesus, is the way of the kingdom of God, is the way of the gospel, is the way of the church. Is the way of the cross your way? The cross holds contempt on all pride, on all selfish ambition, on the lifestyle and beauty of the elite, and on all the kingdoms of the world, including this one. The cross shows that Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth, but it is yet to come in its fullness and has come in part now in the spirit, in this, the part of the kingdom that has been entrusted to us now this body of Christ. Are you living for this life or are you living for the life yet to come? The cross is radical in obedience to the will of God. It's radical in nonconformity to the ways of this world and it's radical in its love for others. Is radical the way you might describe your life in contrast to the ways of this world? In the end, you have to answer the question, what is your life a witness to? Jesus and his kingdom or Satan and the kingdom of this world? Which way do you follow? Are you at war or have you declared a peace treaty with the world? If it's a peace treaty, you've quenched the spirit of God within you. And you're forsaking the one to serve the other. And most of the people in this room I know, and I know that's not the desire of your heart. As John Owen has said, though, and it stands as a great warning for us all in reference to sin, where the waters are the calmest, there they are the deepest. Repent and believe. Today is the day of salvation. If you've come again, as I warned in the beginning, to the place when you realize the cross of Jesus is your only hope in this life and have crawled again to its foot in need of resurrection from the dead, then I encourage you to enjoy afresh the immensity of God's grace to sinners such as ourselves. To Him be the glory, honor, and praise forever. Amen. You're dismissed.